It is the second of Luke's books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and the second part of it is Acts. It was not split up originally, but was done so when they stitched the Bible together in its present format. They wanted the four Gospels to stay Gospels, and then Acts follows. That said, let us hear the word as it is brought to us from the first chapter, verses 1 through 11 in Acts. In the first book, Theophilus, which means anybody that's a lover of God, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O God, by your Holy Spirit, bring words that can be spoken in truth and ears that can hear in Christ's name. Amen. Did this sound like a graduation commencement speech to you? I don't know about you, but the more I read it, it sounds like one of those graduation speeches. It's a season of graduation speeches, and always online you'll see the top 10 graduation speeches all over the country. I googled that recently, but they haven't really gotten around yet enough, I think, to rate them. One of them I came across was a speech by Oprah Winfrey. It was a speech to her alma mater, um, Tennessee State University the only predominantly black university or college in Tennessee. She started by sharing a sermon that when she graduated, she was called to preach decades before. 
And she said that she started that sermon with, I know not what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And I want to tell you, she said, that I've been guided by the light of God's grace my entire life. People ask, what's the secret to my success? And I say, because I lean on his grace. She goes on to say that life is always throwing a million voices at us, always talking to us, not all you can trust, most you can't trust, she said, but she has learned to listen to that still, small voice of God that you can only hear when you get quiet enough to detect it, to listen. She says, I mean truly listen. You can, you can begin then to distill from all the other voices the still, small voice of God. She goes on that the still, small voice is also full of the thousands of other voices of her friends and her family and all the wise people that she has spoken with or read about, the preachers and, and so forth. All those voices are part of that still small voice and that it is her job to align herself with God's voice and God's dream for her using that still small voice. Now, I don't know how Oprah and Tennessee State University as a state university can get away with such a sermon for the graduation commencement speech, but you go, girl. <laughs> this morning's passage in the book of Acts is Jesus' graduation address, his commencement address to his disciples. Luke actually started the address at the end of his gospel, as I said, and carries it over into this morning's passage. In it, Jesus reiterates to his disciples that he and they are both moving on, separating. Jesus is ascending into heaven with God to be at God's right hand, and the disciples are about to be pushed out of their alma mater, their nurturing mother place, which is what it means. Their nurturing mother place so close to Jesus into the world with lots of voices and lots of choices and lots of de demands and lots of headwinds. So when they had come together, they still asked him what we all ask. Jesus, is now the time when you are going to finally restore the kingdom? Fix it. They're still hoping against hope, even though Jesus had told them over and over again that Jesus was going to bring a whole new world order. Is now the time? Please, Jesus, before you leave, bring back the kingdom of Israel. And we can understand this. We can, when David was king, that was the glory time. That's when Israel was a kingdom. All this language, this glory language, this coronation language that we've used in our psalms this morning, all built on that glory of God, glory of Israel from the high place uh, time. And, and they just want that back. They're just hoping that Jesus can fix it. And I get that. I mean, life is hard, right? It's, it's painful, and there's a lot of suffering 
And, and as I think about these disciples in this passage, no wonder they're asking Jesus to make it right. But I have the sense that they were on the verge of giving up, too. As the Gospels tell it, they signed on hoping and believing that Jesus was that long-awaited Messiah to make Israel great again. And those disciples had gone three long years to watch him be crucified, only to be resurrected, and now he stands with them on the mountaintop and says, I'm leaving you again? To what? And even though Jesus had told them over and over again that his kingdom was a different kind of kingdom, it was, it was a kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the state. It was a kingdom of heaven, not the worldly kingdom, not a political or military kingdom, not a kingdom from on high, but a kingdom from down low. So Jesus tells them again, as he had so many times, it's not for you to know the times of God. Or, in Oprah's words, it is not for me to know what the future holds, but who holds my future. And then he gives them their mission. He doesn't fix it. He gives them their mission. Now you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Oh, I get that. Jerusalem, sure, that's where it's at, right? Jerusalem, that's, that's the heart of the place. Jerusalem. Then he goes to meddling. And all Judea, wait a minute, all out there where all those other people are, all those different clans and peoples and races and nationalities and identities, and then he makes it worse by saying, and into Samaria, wait a minute, Russia? That, that place that's our enemy, Samaria? He doesn't end there. Then he says, yeah, and to all the ends of the earth. That's your mission, to receive power by the Holy Spirit and then be witnesses in these places. Notice that Jesus did not say, just sit down and wait for me to come again into the world, to sit back and, and just wait until the rapture comes and then you'll be taken up out of this world into heaven and all's going to be right, except for those people who don't get to go. But that's not your problem because you're sure you will just sit down and wait. There's no apocalyptic language here in Jesus' commencement address. Go into the world as it still exists, he says, and make disciples of all nations. That is to say, don't convert them, just tell them the story. Because they need to hear it, like you, that they too are children of God are loved and forgiven by God, are created in God's image, and are given the same freedom and responsibilities that we are, every single human being on earth. I gotta tell you, this is so hopeful for me, so upbeat. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. But I wouldn't mind it if he kinda gave me some hints right? I was having lunch with somebody I think I told you about recently. He's done well in life. He's 70 years old. He said the 70th birthday for me, that was the only birthday that's whacked me. It made me start thinking that I, as I said, he's been very, I need to do something different with my life. 
I just wish I knew how many years I had left. And I shot back, no, you don't, because that means some doctor had just given you a diagnosis. Now is what Jesus says, you do this. We do not know who owns the, holds the future but God. Now, I admit, you know, life throws itself at us, and it feels like bricks. It's hard. And it's not, and it, sometimes it just doesn't feel like anything but a crash, a crush, a jolt, a shove to the ground. Which is why I guess Jesus experienced that too. That Jesus came from on high and took on human flesh from top down to bottom. And when we understand that from top down to bottom is the place that we experience our own humanity and the place that we experience what it means to be humble, from top down to bottom we find our humility. When we see that, isn't there another way? For me, that's the way it works. Maybe you can are different, but inevitably when I start feeling all high and mighty, feeling real good about myself and I've got this and I found this and I guarantee you there's another banana peel right on my path that I will flip up on like Charlie Chaplin on my keister. Sooner or later, we will bite the dust no matter how high we have risen. And the sooner we experience it, the sooner we experience wisdom. In our world, what goes up must come down, right? It's called gravity. Jesus' world, however, shows us that that is sort of true, but what it really shows us is that what is up comes down to us and takes on human form, the trajectory of God to us. He came down from God, human in every way that we are, died a prisoner on the cross, lived among the last, the least, the lost, and the lonely, by, born by an unwed mother in a cattle stall with shep, smelly shepherds and animals. By any measure, Jesus came into the world at the bottom. And he lived his life there. And this descent from God through Jesus is what gives us the assurance that God is with us in all places no matter how low or how bottomed out we are or how fallen. With us to assure us that we are not alone and also to assure us that God's future is God's and that God will come into that present and future with us. Unbelievable story of hope. But that's not the end of it. For just as much as God descends from the heights into the depths of humanity, that place of the groundedness, it's the U-curve, it's the, it's the cosmic U-curve of change. 
You know the U-curve in business? You're rolling along and all of a sudden something happens and you fall off the cliff and you go down the mountain and you're in the bottom of the valley and it's the U-curve, it's the U-curve of change. God says, when you're in the bottom of the U-curve, you're most close to me. For that is the place where I am about to bring new things to bear. And those new things are called reconciliation and redemption and ultimately resurrection at the bottom. And, th and that's the irony. When we fall, we're closer to God than when we're sitting on the mountaintops. Is now the time, Jesus, that you will restore the kingdom? Not for you to know. Instead, you will receive power from the Spirit as it comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So go back to where you came from. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. Then after saying this, they watched Jesus ascend, gobsmacked in some way physics cannot explain. Jesus just sort of evaporates up into the sky, and they're flummoxed. What goes down must go up. And he leaves them. He leaves them. He leaves them. Talk about a dramatic exit. Everyone waiting for the climax in the play, and the hand of God lifts Jesus up off the stage like some heavenly hoist without resolving the crisis, leaving them standing there gawking, waiting what comes next, and then two stagehand angels show up and tell them, go home, the play is over, just sit down and wait. You'd pay for that, wouldn't you? <laughs> he left them. He left them. And sometimes it feels like he leaves us. But he says he doesn't, because he says, I leave with you instead the power of the Holy Spirit, which will come upon you and raise you into new life. And the new life that he raises us into, you see, is this. This is, God, this is so spine-chilling. The life he gives us is a life of freedom. Not fear. Freedom from our sins, from our grief, from our, from our guilt, Freedom from all the voices running around in our heads like drunken monkeys telling us that we are not worthy, that we are not okay, that I do not measure up, that woe is me. Freedom from that, he gives us. God, tell me that doesn't move you. That the, the power of God in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is the power that sets us free from the powers of darkness. He gives us that. And with freedom, of course, comes the other side of it, the haunting, almost even horrific realization that we have responsibility to go with it. We do not have freedom to do whatever we want. We have freedom so that we may be responsible. There's a great passage in Dostoevsky's um, Crime and Punishment, I think it is, where the Grand Inquisitor has figured out that Jesus has returned, and he returned, he's come back again, and he's, a, and he's a, just an itinerant preacher in Russia. And so the, the Grand Inquisitor, who's the, who's the head of the church, 
has him arrested because he knows if Jesus comes back, then he's going to give the people freedom. And, and the inquisitor knows that that's the last people, the last thing people want. People really don't want freedom. They want structure and order and somebody to tell them what to do and how to do it. And so the inquisitor puts Jesus in jail and, and he, he comes to him and he says to Jesus, remember Jesus when you were tempted by the devil in the wilderness and, and the devil commanded you to turn these stones into bread? Turn them into bread so that mankind will run after you like sheep, grateful and obedient. But you did not want to deprive man of freedom, and you rejected the offer. For what sort of freedom is it, you reasoned, if obedience is bought with loaves of bread? Everything Jesus did, you see, was to free us from feeling that everything good is bought. We are never coerced or bribed by God. But looking back through history, you have to admit there are so many peoples and nations who have abdicated their freedom to some tyrant who promises to bring order, to make the, the trains run on time, to offer bread for everyone. So, so moved by it, they give up their freedom to him, and they end up choosing security and tyranny over being human. Jesus refuses that role. It's top-down that role, not bottom-up. Instead, what Jesus does is empower us. You will receive power, he says, and the power that we receive is the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of freedom to live free from sin and guilt, as I said, and to become who we have been created to become in the image of free to live lives of hope and faith and love and joy and industry and agency to act in freedom to decide and liberty to live a life where God alone is the Lord of our conscience and nobody else can tell us what we are called to believe and what we are called to do in that belief but God alone is our Lord in conscience and, and, and that's what freedom is but it's not freedom to do whatever we want It's not freedom to live lives of immorality or lavishness or self-interest. It's not freedom. That's, a, that's just another tyranny. It's a tyranny of the tiny. It's not, it's not freedom to, to consume ourselves with consumption or anger or get back or the need to be friended or to be in control or to be big, bad, and brutal. Those are other tyrannies. In our land of freedoms in Jesus Christ, freedom for its own sake, just for its own sake, without responsibility, is the worst kind of tyranny. Because now I can choose to do whatever I want. Really? Communism stamps out freedom for the sake of the collective. It's the devil in disguise. Communists have everyone turning stones into bread to feed everybody else, but they can't turn enough stones into bread, and so they decide to invade the great breadland of the world, the Ukrainians, because those Ukrainians are starting to live like they are free.
But rampant capitalism has its own tyranny. It's a tyranny of loneliness and alienation and disconnection and quiet desperation seeking the material thinking that it is the spiritual. We are free, friends, and we are given a mighty responsibility to live lives that give witness to that. It is a holy honor, and a holy honor to be human, a sacred freedom we've been given that makes us holy, set apart when we follow God's commandment to love God with heart, mind, and soul and our neighbor as ourself. I'm talking to myself. I preach because I need to hear again to persuade myself this truth. And I'm preaching, and I'm preaching to you, this congregation, and I'm preaching to our officers who are about to be ordained and installed that we are free and responsible. And I'm, and I'm, preaching, and I'm preaching to Annie and Thomas and her family, and I'm preaching to everyone who's on the move from one place to the next. It is God's future, and in that future, we live freely and responsibly. And I'm talking to these officers about what it means to be an officer, and I'm speaking to you again, and I'm, this is the word to the world. We have freedom under God to live responsibly. The two go hand in hand. It's complex, I know. It's, it, it, I know it's complex. You have these two powers, freedom and responsibility. I know that. But you see, this is, this is God's way. This is the third way. This is, this is the way of God. When it's, when it's complex and we can't get our head around it, it's probably true. It's from the Spirit. And with that Spirit, let us gather together as we call forth our officers so that they may be ordained and installed in freedom and responsibility.